Um, uh, my name is Richard Christopher. I'm from Microsoft here in Cambridge, from Mr. Medmond, and it was quite a good um, uh, preface to my own talk because what I wanted to talk about um, is an agitation. And the agitation led me to bring together um, a few events, and I've just published a book with some authors in this audience. And the agitation had to do with the agitation that is the word trust, and the agitation that results when people talk about trust. And the curious phenomenon, if you look at the literature, that when arguments are made about trust, particularly from the computer science world, the world is constructed in this fashion, good and evil. Good people in the computer science lab, evil people down the end of the road of Madeline, trying to break into the security codes written by the dudes here. Now, it seems perfectly reasonable to say that sometimes that might be a sensible way of thinking. But part of the problem with thinking about trust is that you can crowd out sensible arguments. You can crowd out alternative ways of thinking. You can crowd out due care and diligence. And one of the things we've just suggested here is that when, for example, you use a behavioral economics approach, one consequence of that technique is often to treat rational action as the rational action of an idiot. Not the rational action of someone who knows what their utility maximization techniques might be, but the rational action of someone who doesn't understand what really happens inside the system. If only they knew, if only they came to computer science lab, they would understand these sorts of things. Part of the problem then in trust in HCI, in trust in systems, is calmness. Calmness to thinking about different sorts of arguments. Calmness to think about what philosophers are thinking about. Calmness to think about what HCI researchers are thinking about. Calmness to realize that when David Clark says, part of the problem about identity is not that identity is crucial to prohibit or enable on the internet, rather that any crude solutions which treats the world as either good or bad will result in legislation which will prohibit part of the genius of the internet, which is its flexibility. Now, not only that, but it also prohibits proper circumspection of the range of sorts of arguments which are applicable to the question of trust. Now, I'm going to present one simple example from this particular book, which is who is it you trust? Typically, the argument is good people, bad people. Good people, bad people, or in the case of behavioural economics, idiotic people. Now, what, what, what about somebody else? What about trusting yourself? Years and years ago, I was hired by the mobile phone operators to ask why it would be that some of them wanted prepaid. They said the only people who reason why people want prepaid phone contracts was because they're trying to hide their identity. And the only people who want to hide their identity must be, of course, the people who are the enemies of this place. Distrusting, distrustful people, villains, criminals. I was charged as a sociology professor to explain to the mobile operators and thus to the regulator why the regulator wanted mobile operators to allow villains to have mobile phones, to do illicit things with mobile phones. So we spent some time working with various sorts of families and other users, and one of the things we found is a commonplace, is a common sense construction, that the problem of managing your finances is not a question of worrying whether Ros can break into your bank account, it's a question of can you trust yourself? Teenagers are gas bags. Mothers are gas bags with their daughters. Fathers try to be gas bag with their teenage boys, but the teenage boys won't listen. The point is, the point is, the person who needs to worry about trustworthiness is themselves. Now, when we presented this to the, the mobile operators, what we tried to say to them was that when you had prepaid, you could allocate £10 for the weekend play, for the weekend chit-chatting, for the drunken moments on the way home when you found out your best friend to tell them about the gossip. And when the £10 was up, 
You couldn't pay any more money in. You controlled yourself. You tamed yourself. Now, how does that pertain to today? Well, here's an example in this particular book, which has to do with the anthropology of stuff. When Xerox coined the word icon, they were very diligent in using that word to say this is not a symbol representing on the desktop. This is not a thing which directly points to that data store somewhere probably fragmented on the disk. We choose the word icon because it's meant to evoke more. Now, look at the latest release of Win uh, Windows, this operating system. We no longer have icons, we have tiles, and tiles look like symbols. They seem to represent just a thing as it is, and there's no, there's no pregnancy with power. Okay, and now you put your stuff not just on your PC, but on the cloud. And when we talk to users, when we try and do our research, one of the things that comes across with it is not that people don't trust OneDrive, Dropbox, to store their stuff. The problem they have is they don't know what their stuff is anymore. When someone has a picture on their desktop, on their laptop, they're taken from their mobile phone, upload it onto the machine. When they put it onto Facebook, their mates put other things around it. Their mates copy it. When they copy from their desktop and put it onto Flickr, there's a bit, they are aware that there's a lossiness. That the thing on Flickr is not as good as the, the thing they have there. So they say to us, so Richard, where's my thing? Where's the stuff? Can I have somewhere where I know my stuff is? In any case, when I put it up on Facebook, the thing that it was is transformed into something else, into a web of other connections. If I delete that picture, all those little markings, annotations, all that little web of other connections sort of stays there. And worse, somebody else might have borrowed it. Where's my stuff? And they say to me, the problem is not that I worry about strangers on the web. The problem is I cannot trust myself to know where my stuff is. Even at the most basic, basic anthropological interaction with stuff, there's ambiguity. The trust they lack is in themselves. Now, I'm going to stop now. One of the reasons why I got this book together was I felt as if, and I'm still convinced, that part of the problem with this community is an intolerance, a, a lack of due care and attention about the awkward differences of other perspectives. In sociology, for example, I'm a sociologist, one of the problems of sociology is its self-obsession with drawing attention to itself, and it does that by every so often a sociologist saying we have no trust in society, society lacks trust. Now, when they make that move, they're not making an empirical move, they're not talking about how trust functions, they're saying, listen to me. When they say, listen to me, as another sociologist, the first thing I think is they're worrying about their career. Look at their evidence in their book, and you often find there's very little evidence about trust and constitutive elements and practices which make society. Often it's a different sort of move. It's the kind of move I see in this world of HCI and trust, which is you raise the word trust to create excitement, tension, and in that you create a fragility to intellectual life. That's my finish. That's my book.